Hi pedestrians, welcome to Founders University. My name's Chris Warasinha and I'm a co-founder of Pedestrian.tv. Founders Uni is a geeky, in-depth chat with some of our favorite Aussie startup legends. But first, a word from our sponsor. If you want to know how easy it is to build a website on Squarespace, it's time to tune in. I jumped onto Squarespace and registered the domain foundersuni.com. I then chose a website template that worked for our podcast, picked the functionality we needed, typed in the copy and uploaded my images. From there, you simply select your plan and publish. And with the offer code PTV, you get 10% off your first purchase at squarespace.com. So what are you waiting for? Lauren Silvers and Lisa Marie are founders of on-demand beauty startup Glamazon. They've raised $1.2 million in seed funding and are on track to deliver $1 million in annual revenue. They've made it onto Shark Tank and talk us about that experience and also how a criminal almost stole 25% of their business. Stay tuned for the full story. Lauren and Lisa, thank you so much for joining us at Founders University. Um, just to kick off, can you give us the Glamazon elevator pitch? Okay, well, Glamazon is Australia's largest real-time platform for at-home beauty appointments. Nice. Simple as that. That That is a good elevator pitch. It's sometimes been described as kind of like the Uber of beauty. Is that something that you guys subscribe to as a description? It's so funny because when I put my first deck together, I had on the title Uber of beauty and I had such negative feedback from investors, like really negative. <laughs> so we sort of steered away from that. But it is a really like easily easy way to describe what we do because the average person is, you know, it's a new concept, people coming into your house and Uber's been around. So it's easy for us to relate what we do to that. And our technology is pretty similar in that a customer can select the level of stylist that they're after, Glam X or Glam Black, junior or senior, and then that uh, booking request will go out to a number of stylists that match that request and the first one to hit accept wins the job. So it's the same technology in that way. Do you think that all services are going to end up going that way? It's looking like it at yeah. the moment. Yeah, it really is. Everything's becoming a marketplace. And I think they're one of the most scalable ways to build a business at the moment. Glamazon's had a very kind of far from linear growth story. It's actually quite fascinating. Can you talk us through kind of the first year and how you kind of started the company? Well, Glamazon actually started about five years ago. I started it out of my own frustrations in uh, booking salon appointments. So I went out to build a salon booking platform and two and a half years later realized that there was a huge barrier to me accessing the real-time availability at each salon. They all use different calendar systems. So it was virtually impossible to um, have scale in that way. And there was a cultural shift towards peer-to-peer -to -peer services. I noticed I was getting into a stranger's car all the time with UberX. Um, I was renting out Airbnb all the time, you know, going to a stranger's home. And so I really wanted to develop an at-home beauty services platform, but I didn't want to start from scratch. So that's where um, Lisa comes into the story. It was about 2016 when we met. It was, yeah. I have another business in America and I'd been living overseas for six years and saw an emerging trend in the market over there for at-home beauty services. Something, it was becoming so popular so quickly. Um, when I did move back to Australia, I noticed a gap in the market over here. So that led me to launch at the time what was called Glam Crew. So that's the freelancer model. Um, 
Lauren and I, I launched it in mid-2016 and shortly after was introduced to an investor and who did his DD on me, loved what I was doing, sort of walked away and said, I'm going to do something with you. I just don't know what it is yet. And he found Lauren um, during his due diligence and basically came back to me and said, I found this girl. She's got an amazing company, an amazing brand. What I want you two to, to do is to, in, uh, to merge and I'll invest in you. And so basically we came together, we met, we adored each other from the We the wore moment. the same outfit when we met. <laughs> really? From the first moment. Um, yeah. And yeah, we merged our businesses. We kept Lauren's branding because it was amazing. It was everywhere and we used my business model. What was the outfit that you were both wearing? It's a Burberry, a Burberry trench coat. Yeah, with black clothes with underneath. With black clothes underneath and yeah. sneakers. Yeah. So we walked into the room and we were like, <laughs> I think we were both shocked. And then we found out we lived two streets away in Bondi and we had never met each other. And uh, we had a lot of mutual friends. We'd never met each other. We called our business. Oh, Lisa had registered. You registered... Um, the fitness one. Yeah, a body crew. Body crew. So Lisa had Glam, Glam crew, crew and Body Crew and I had registered Glam Fit and Glamazon and we just had similar mindsets but different skills. And so we could both offer something different, bring something to the table. Yeah, nice. And so, Lauren, did you have business partners before Lisa? No. Never. I so always was... wished I had one because it's a lonely journey and it's difficult and you go through this roller coaster and the highs are really high and no one can relate and the lows are so low and no one can relate but I knew it would have had to have happened organically you can't force that and this just happened organically it was three years after I started Glamazon so I pushed through and persevered for three years and then this sort of just happened and it's it's a blessing to work with somebody who has an aligned vision with you and that's the key is that neither one of us care about being right it's about winning and so we have the same goals um and i think if anyone out there um wanting to start a business having a partner is extremely important for also the emotional and moral support because it's highly emotional running your own business because everything's on the line it's your you're risking everything mm-hmm. it's it's so interesting because my other business I've had it for 10 years and it's always been me and I bootstrapped it from the start and I'd been told horror stories about partnerships and they always scared me um and then with with Glam Crew with Glamazon it was completely the opposite for me. Something just clicked yeah. and I spent 10 years of my life with my other business grueling through like all of the ups and downs and, and I didn't want to do that again this time. And so I think the stars just aligned and things fell into place and we're both really open and honest, transparent people and I think that is the most important thing in a partnership. Yeah, to be we honest. don't have ego in it. No. We're just, yeah, we're upfront with each other. Mm-hmm. So can you tell us what the other business is, Lisa? Sure. It's a fashion label. Um, it's been around for 10 years. I stock um, Selfridges, Nordstrom, Bloomingdale's, a lot of stores throughout America and Europe, Dubai as well. Net-a-porter. Not, yeah, porter Shopbop. Um, yeah, a whole long list. And we've had some great celebrities wearing the brand, Rihanna, Jennifer Lopez, Kourtney Kardashian, and the list goes on. So, yeah, it's been... Um, a big chunk of my life and it's still going on now, but I'm lucky that I'm in in a position now where I don't have to be involved in a day-to-day sort of role. So that sounds like almost having two full-time jobs. What is it that made you, you know, and and if that business is quite successful and doing well, what what made you change and, you know, try to take on this new challenge? I, I think I get bored easily, which is 
you know, it could be a positive or seen as a negative also, but I always want to feel fulfilled and feel proud of myself and feel like I'm achieving something. And so, so starting something new where I felt like there was a gap and I could actually do something and, and make it big. Um, I just jumped in head first and I didn't really think about it, but uh, some days I, you know, when the hair is going gray and <laughs> you're good, you don't sleep at night, I think, why did I do it? But all the other days when things are going really well and I just look back and I'm yeah, proud of what I've achieved and I'm happy that I pursued this second company. Yeah, nice. And so you, you've both spoken about like kind of early struggles in raising capital. Like what, what did you sort of learn from that period? I guess maybe like how not to do it potentially or like or why you were having those challenges? Well, when I, when I had Glamazon, I think I was prematurely reaching out for investment. I didn't understand the investment scene well enough. I would go to meetings and have that whole hit by a bus conversation where it's like, it's just you. What if you get hit by a bus? Who else is going to, you know, run the company? Uh, that's another val, you know, a benefit of having, uh, two people. But now in hindsight, it's, I do understand that investment is really a way to accelerate growth that you're already seeing. So I was still in that product market fit stage and we, I, we had a lot of work to do before we could, you know, get the valuation of the business up high enough to bring on capital so that, you know, the equity equations makes, made sense. But once we had a, a supportive investor who Lisa spoke about before, um, it was really great to know that they just believed in us as founders and that's what it's all about at early stage. It's just, can you demonstrate that you have the ability to execute really well? Nice. So you've now managed to raise $1.2 million in seed funding. So how do you, I think, I think a big challenge that a lot of like early stage founders have is like, how do you set a valuation for a company that's really new? Like what, have you got any tips on how to do that? It's very difficult when you don't have revenue. If your revenue is negligible, it's very difficult to set a valuation. Um, tech companies are a little different to an average company. And a normal company that sells a product who's not a tech company would go by five years revenue. Um, a tech company, it's almost like picking something out of thin air. But we did have a discussion with our seed investor and we came to an agreement with him. Um, at the time, it was around $2 million, and which is quite normal for an early stage tech company. We did have um, Lauren's technology that was already built um, that did cost a lot to develop. And I had a, a great supply and we were also showing revenue already when we met these investors. So I think was, we had about 10,000, just to put numbers to, to make it clear, yeah. I think we had about 10,000 customers and 200 or so freelancers on our platform and a couple of hundred salons because we were still working with salons at the time. We don't anymore. Yeah. Um, so we had a nest egg and we were doing about 10K in revenue a yeah, month. Yeah. I think that the first three months, the first month was 3K, the second month was 5K, the third month was 10K. So so we showed consistent growth and we went by those metrics and then also we took everything else that we've mentioned into consideration and, and we came up with a, a figure that they were happy with and we were happy with at the time. Yeah, cool. And and so does the business continue to grow month on month? Like is every month bigger than the last month? Yeah, our average month on month growth in revenue is about 50%. So it's um quickly accelerating. Yeah, which is scary because with that much growth, it comes so much more work and it's exciting work, but we make it a point in our business to understand and know our customers really well. So it's really about having 
clever resources or, re, you know, our human capital is really important because we want to physically be the ones talking to the customers and finding out when there's a problem. And we don't want any of our customers to ever speak to a, you know, a robot or, or an AI bot or whatever it is. We, we want to be the humans interacting with them. That's part of our unique selling point. So as you grow, you know, it gets harder and harder to do that um, and things slip through the cracks, but it's just important to continue to find the right talent. That's our biggest challenge, but it's also our biggest saviour when we find those people who just love the business and work really hard, don't leave the office till 10pm on their own accord. Like, that's what it's all about. And so we talked about setting evaluation. Have you got any other tips for, like, kind of people that are starting out that want to kind of you know, raise money? Yeah, sure. I think it's just about speaking to as many people as possible. Um, I was speaking at an event the other night and I said, go to LinkedIn and search investor and send a hundred messages and you might get two back, but those two could potentially lead to investment. So I think it's about just speaking to as many people as possible and not being shy about it. And eventually you'll get a bite here and there. It's, it's quantity. I, I think it's a couple of things. It's getting a mentor, someone who can guide you through the whole process, who's made the mistakes before, learn from them. People, human nature says that we want to help people. So you know, leverage that. Um, and the second thing would be is to just put in the hard work. Don't est- underestimate the um, importance and the value of manual work. We did not have this amazing technology platform at first. So you ha- we had to manually get numbers on our scoreboard. We had to, um, I was manually calling around salons to book in customers. They thought it was technology working because they were clicking buttons, but it was really emails coming through to me, me manually booking in at the salon and sending what looked like an automated email back. Um, so just work really hard. And once you've got that growth and you can see traction, then go to an investor. Cool. One thing that I thought was interesting, I read in an interview that you said that some of that early stage money that you managed to kind of bring in to fund the company, it came through in drips and drabs. So, so that's something that, because I, I always just pictured that, oh, you have the conversation, you get a check, your bank account just fills with all this money. <laughs> um, so can you talk us through the drips and drabs thing? Yeah. One, it was related to the maximum transfer limit of their <laughs> <Yeah>. bank account. <laughs> But but two, um, our first seed investor was made up of four individuals and they came together as a company. So the money had to come from four different people and it's it's not necessarily an instant process. So they are organizing their own company within their unit and then one person's paying and we're receiving one transfer and then another transfer. I think it just comes to, it's just the way people are. It's, it's human behavior and... Um, it is, think- it is funny though because we would have spent – remember when we were first – we first secured the investment and we had that huge photo shoot in November 2016 planned mm. and we were about to invest $6,000 into this like all-day photo video shoot. We had the models booked, everything, all the locations and because we got the money in dribs and drabs, we actually had to cancel this shoot the day before and we were devastated. <laughs> well, but in yeah. hindsight – we would have wasted that money because, you know, now, I mean, it's so much cheaper and easier to produce um, photo shoots and stuff. And so in a way, it does help with the bootstrap mentality when you know that there's this finite amount of of um, money that you have access to for that month. And with a burn rate of X amount, you have to get through to the next month. You can't die. So in a way, I think it does help you because it forces you to be frugal. Yeah, and a lot of investors do give the money in certain, you know, dribs and drabs because of that exact reason. So I think there's a strategy behind that also. I've seen multiple startups be overcapitalized and invest in 
big, you know, iMac desktops for their seven staff and, you know, these big offices and like our furniture is all from $35 desks from Kmart kind of thing. It's still from Kmart now, even like way down the road when we've raised all the money. But we, Lauren and I, we're on our hands and knees putting our Kmart furniture together in our office. Yeah, so it forces you to to be a bit scrappy. Stay tuned for more Founders University after the break. Founders Uni is brought to you by Squarespace. If you're inspired to start the next great Australian startup or simply launch a creative project, why not jump online and experiment with a range of e-commerce ready templates for you to launch your next entrepreneurial adventure. Don't forget to use the offer code PTV for 10% off your first purchase. Lauren, in some of the kind of early email exchanges to set this up, you talked about like there being some dark days Mm. in the like kind of setup. Like is it quite... It must be challenging going out to the market and not being able to raise investment. Is, is that something that you guys kind of faced when you were both out I there? I think I only did because... You did, yeah, but it was Because Glamazon, um, as I said before, was a salon booking platform and I, I could just tell it wasn't working. And you're so emotionally invested. I'd spent so much of my parents' money as a loan and I'd, uh, I sacrificed. A lot of people don't talk about the other stuff that you sacrifice. I couldn't keep going to like, you know, friends' birthdays and Christmas dinners and stuff like that with all my friends because it all costed money. So you have to change your lifestyle completely. You stop like shopping for clothes and going out for dinners and drinks because you literally can't afford it. Every dollar is going into your business. So you feel lonely because you feel like you don't have the same maybe support network as you once did at the time as well I was um, in a relationship where my partner wasn't really understanding what I was doing at the time like he just um, he was in real estate didn't really understand startups so that was hard and then on top of that you know that the business model isn't working you have no idea how to pivot you know that there's this magical buzzword called pivot and that it's possible but you don't know how to actually execute it you've you've run out of funds and it just feels like a dead end and so I specifically remember dark days where like I'm just crying and crying and crying and not being able to know like what's going to happen the next day and yet you have to show like you know you have to save face in front of people and on social media that you've got this big company like I had fake email addresses for a PR director uh, you know all these an ops manager but they were just me so I was working off like three different emails to have this perception that I was this massive company I was picking up the phone on a Saturday pretending to be Phoebe from customer service but it was me so you have this big perception that you're running a big company so how can you possibly tell people the next day that you failed and it's that fear of failure whilst um, also having imposter syndrome where you feel like people are like, you're killing it, you're killing it when you're really not. So that is just exhausting after a while. Was there any particular moment from that period that really epitomised that time or like? I remember taking a Snapchat and this is when I, I moved back in my in, with my parents to save on rent and all that and I was in my bedroom at my parents' house and I took a Snapchat at the time and it said, it was of me lying on the floor and it said, haven't showered or left my room in two days and I sent it out to close friends. I just remember that for some reason. Like, I just couldn't pick myself up off the floor. Like, I just, I was working, I was tired, but I couldn't sleep, I was overtired. That, for me, like, thinking about that time, it's a sad, dark time, but it also, it's like what Richard Branson says, sometimes um, successful entrepreneurs, it's all about survivability and just surviving to the next stage. And then one email that you sent three weeks ago, suddenly you get a reply about a potential, maybe collaboration or partnership, and that 
brightens your day a little bit and you start working on that and that gets you through. So it's just persevering, I think. Yeah, cool. So was it finding Lisa that kind of brought you out of that or was it like something else? Was it a pivot or? When I had met Lisa, that was also a dark stage because I had someone. No, not had... the actual meeting of Lisa. <laughs> no, that was no, no, no. But when I had met you, I, I walked had in with a cloud that... over my yeah. head. No, that... <laughs> I had a criminal who'd, who'd stolen money yeah. from the business, so that was a dark space. So yeah, finding Lisa was like the biggest blessing ever, and being able to put our two brains together and our like just our energy. We're both very spiritual as well, so it was nice to meet someone in business who wasn't just so about the facts. We're a bit, you know, about intuition and stuff. So it was amazing. So somebody stole money from the business. Yeah. What what happened with that? Well, I found out it happened to a few of us in the startup community who were working in the same space, a few of the same similar like competitive startups. As a result, I built relationships with my biggest competitors at the time because this same man came in posing to be somebody else with this amazing list of credentials and what he could do for the business and investment. Like He brought money into the business and got really deep into the business in a maybe three, four-month period and then all of a sudden found out that you know he'd registered the out my ABN um not ABN sorry my domain under his name so I was like using his assets basically even though they were mine he'd registered with ASIC 25% of the business in ownership under his name so things happen like that and it questions your trust in people but then you know I met Lisa and then all that goes out of the window and you just know it's real when the, when it happens it's like finding a partner that, yeah I you feel know, like we're dating right yeah. now <laughs> And so, and so that was happening to multiple startups. Yeah, so I connected with someone who it was happening with as well, and he was he just told me the way. He said, "Do this, do this, do this." We had the same thing. He they got him out, I got him out, and then I could see it happening to somebody else, and I contacted that person and stopped that relationship from you know forming. And now I think he, I haven't heard from this person in a long time, but it was scary. Yeah. Wow, that's that's fascinating. How did you how did you first discover that? Because this other business shared a story with me about how this person had registered the domain name in his in the guy's name, and it for it, it I happened. told you the story, and you said it check ha- the domain. Yeah, name. it happened when I. It was around the time when I'd met Lauren, and I was doing my due diligence on you, and then all of these things started coming to light. Yeah, um, yeah. So it was just luck. Mm. That's fast. I've never heard that before, but it, it, it is that thing where like it would be so easy for somebody to do that. People prey on um, non-technical founders or really new entrepreneurs who are in their first venture because you are so unsure about every move that you make and you're so welcoming to help. So anyone offering help feels like a blessing. And so, yeah, they there are people out there um, who do prey on you. So it taught me a lot. Yeah, crazy. So you, you sort of I guess the solution is what, like network with other founders and sort of have a sounding board or? I think too, for me, I don't know, it might be different for other people. I am a big advocate of being in control of your bank accounts, in control of your corporate keys, anything to do with ASIC. And I would never hand that over to anyone else. It's just, yeah, the way I work. 
Yeah, I didn't hand over a corporate key or anything, but I found out that I had signed a document that was a piece of paper was slipped between a different document um, from my accountant. Um, it was my tax return document. And you know how they put those sign, sign pages, I'm um, sorry, those sign post-its kind of for every page, flipping through, just signing all the pages from my accountant and one of them was a page giving him 25% ownership of the business. Because you're just sort of like flipping through and just signing. It's my family's trusted accountant for many years so the cover page is you know and it's been stapled so yeah that's how it all happened so it's people are awful so it came through your accountant yeah it came through the tax return came to the office from the accountant and then there was a piece of paper in there and yeah wow that's that's mind-blowing yeah well it's good that you managed to make it out of that um so we've never had a startup on founders university that's been on shark tank so i'm really (laughs) fascinated to find out, like, what is that experience like? And, you know, kind of how do you initially get on? What, That's what is such the... a funny story too because um, Lauren and I had applied separately and it's just an online form, the first sort of part of the application, um, with our own businesses, Glam Crew, Glamazon, before we met. So we'd applied separately and we met and we didn't tell each other that we'd applied. And after, then we met, um, we were, we hadn't officially merged yet, but we'd had the talk and things were in the process and Lauren was dealing with her stuff so we could officially merge when all of that um, shade had to get out of the business. And um, I was told I was in, you were told you were in, and we didn't want to tell each other that we got in because we were a little bit embarrassed at the time, I think. And Lauren, um, you came to me and you said... I said first, I was like, I have something to tell you. I um, I actually applied for Shark Tank and I got in. I know it's a bit embarrassing. <laughs> I think you just feel embarrassed because you've gone out on a limb and, and sort of applied for a reality TV show. It's a little bit embarrassing because it shows a, it's something about your personality. And at least it was like... <laughs> I got into it. <laughs> <laughs> so we called Channel 10 and um, Endemol Shine. We said, look, we're now one company. Can we apply together? And they said, this has never happened, of course. This is exciting. Yeah, and the next process is like a mini Shark Tank audition. So you go to the audition. It's the same sort of thing for business people. You pitch your idea. You have a psychological evaluation after that. And then we got told we got through. And so it gets – you have a few meetings prior to the actual filming with the business advisor who sort of guides you through the process. And then when you get there on the day, it's – actually really confronting and kind of scary because you don't see anyone you're in the green room um, when it's your turn to go on we waited around for hours before it was our turn to go on and then basically they push you down the walkway open the doors and there's the sharks all sitting there and they say don't say anything for one minute just stand on the x so we're like standing builds on, this tension this energy there's in the room. thousands of lights and cameras and the sharks are just staring us down and we're standing on the x sweating <laughs> Yeah, I I uh, use Glam Corner and Rent the Runway and all these kind of like um, rentable dress websites and I was renting a Bauman jacket. It was like a $2,000 jacket and I'm sweating in it. I'm like, how am I going to return this jacket? <laughs> but I returned it. <laughs> we so filmed, yeah, we filmed for a couple of hours and I think they condensed that down to, into the six-minute cut. Yeah. Um, it's very real though that you is. can't retake anything. Mm-hmm. They're just asking you question after question. What's your turn rate, burn rate, your LTV, your CAC. It's full on. You have to know every number mm-hmm. perfectly. And I think that was, you know, why we came out the way we did. And, you know, they did tell us that it was the best pitch they'd ever seen because Lauren and I, prior to the show, we were quizzing each other on our metrics. So we knew everything. Like it was like a, you know, HSC high school exam. Yeah. yeah. 
So for those who aren't familiar with it, can you explain LTV and CAC? Lifetime value and customer acquisition cost. So um, the importance of those two numbers is the customer acquisition cost is the cost it, um, it takes to get a customer to actually purchase in your business. And then the lifetime value is how much money a customer will spend in the lifetime of your business. And um, it's important because if your customer acquisition cost is $100, but the lifetime value of the, of the customer is only $80, then you're losing $20 um, for that one customer. So if at scale, at a million customers, you're losing too much money and basically the business wouldn't work. So it's a they're very important numbers in the business. Um, uh, other numbers that were really important were our burn rate. They were interested in how much money we were actually burning through every month to keep alive because that could they could get an understanding of how much money we actually did need in the business to get, you know, what runway, what how could we last for a 12-month runway, for instance, with their money. So th that was an important number. They, but they quizzed you on absolutely everything. And so Steve Baxter offered you guys $250,000? He did. And did that come through? So we got a deal on the show. Um, what you don't see is after the show um, – there's a 16-week period of due diligence, and that's for both sides, basically. And they gave us all the paperwork to sign so they could start their due diligence. And at that time, Lauren and I decided um, that we didn't want to go ahead with the investment at that valuation because we had secured outside investment. Um, so we spoke to Steve, and he was fine about it, and it didn't end up going through. But we still hear from Steve occasionally now, and he sends investors our way um, yeah. sometimes. We offered so. him the investment at the same valuation we as did. the other guys. So we were upfront about it mm -hmm. and it didn't work out but he's a great you know great person and the whole experience was fantastic from an exposure point of view we grew 300% overnight in revenue and then continued to grow 50% month on month in revenue yeah. so it was a huge catalyst for our um, growth trajectory yeah and I would absolutely recommend to anyone with a, a business a startup to go on the show just there's no way you can possibly get into that many people's living rooms in primetime television you know there's it's I think there were 1.7 million viewers who tuned in that day yeah. that to our episode and then it was replayed three times and then you know Mamma Mia picked mm -hmm. up the story um, Startup Smart Startup Daily so it does do the rounds and then you have this fantastic um, Channel 10 PR team who try to get your um, that episode out more and more so the benefits are enormous that, that's the thing that I find fascinating about Shark Tank is you watch it and you're like I mean some of the founders a lot of the founders have made a lot of money but it does feel like they're just throwing out these like huge deals left right and center and then you kind of go but then when you find out that they don't all go through right. and actually like very few of the deals actually then end up going right. through the due diligence process. It's interesting, mm, yeah. right? It's, um, it's who television. Who TV's lying to you? <laughs> it's yeah. television after all. <laughs> so, so speaking about some of that coverage, like one thing that I've noticed about Glamazon is you guys seem to be experts at getting coverage for Glamazon because there's so much out there, you know, kind of interviews, press. I mean, you know, we're on a podcast talking about the business right now. Like what is it that you do that, I think it helps you connect with media. Uh, well, well I was a publicist. Yeah. So when I first started Glamazon, I didn't even have a product and we were in vogue. Like I just called up all my, you know, emailed all my journalist friends who I'd been working with over the past five years um, prior to that. So uh, the press stuff was was the easy part. I think the hard part is once you have that exposure, how do you really um, – perform for your customers? How do you make sure that you can live up to what these articles are saying about you and not fall down? Because once you're in the limelight, there are a lot of stories about Shark Tank contestants, for instance, who are exposed in on this show and then their businesses collapse because it's not as 
what it seems um, on the outside. On the inside, they crumble. They can't. They crack under pressure, um, and they have bad systems and processes. So it's scary to have that much um, publicity, but we're proud of our business, and so we we don't have anything to hide. So for us, um, the the more press, the better. And so for people that don't have existing press relationships, is there a way that you kind of reached out or, you know, like social have you diary. Got tips? Social diary, okay. Social diary. Um, it's a fantastic, it's a subscription. Um, it's, I think it's about just over a grand annual fee. And every day you'll get a newsletter with, you know, who the new editors are, are of, um, you know, at all the publications or, I, you know, this Founders University popped up on a newsletter and I reached out to you straight away. So social diary is a huge one. And just network, just go to events. People talk about going to events and don't actually go to events. Just do it. Meet people, collect business cards. And then the next day, just email that person always have the follow-up um so that's my advice do you have any advice no you're the pr guru over here (laughs) and we have an amazing publicity team sweaty betty roxy's great yeah roxy is great oh so you guys use roxy Roxy. yeah yeah Yeah. cool nice um so coming through the the last couple of questions so you've now grown to is it eight full-time staff nine we just hired our nine Nine full-time staff so in those, when you're making those first few hires, where are you trying to allocate them? Like, do you have a kind of strategy or a principle yeah. for where you put them? Absolutely. Well, we first and foremost we're a tech company, so our goal was to build out a tech team, and that's what we started with. Um, we followed that by customer service because Lauren and I were originally managing everything, and it was becoming very difficult for us to manage customer service and do our jobs. So our strategy was tech customer service and now we're, we've just brought in management um, and now a CTO to lead our tech team. So And marketing. Uh, and marketing. Well, yeah, Carolina, yeah. she's wonderful. Yeah. Um, so it was definitely a focus on tech for us. Um, that was one of our biggest challenges as non-technical founders. And then it became obvious that we needed more C-suite level um, employees or team members because Lisa and I, uh, we, we know what we don't know. And we focus on our strengths, but we have a lot of weaknesses as well that we like to outsource. So um, our new GM is a um, you know ex Ernst and Young data analyst. Um, he's he builds algorithms. He is awesome. So that was really crucial. It got to the Game point changer. that we yeah that mm. we really needed that, especially when you're dealing with tech and analytics every day. So you're closing in on one million dollars in annual revenue. Is that mm-hmm. correct? Um, what are some tips for people? I feel like that's this huge sort of milestone for a business. So congratulations. Um, but what what's sort of helping you get there? Like what is it that is, I don't know, like the, what, what are the tips of kind of breaking through that million dollar mark or kind of approaching it? I would say always be honest with your numbers and with yourself. A lot of people fluff up their numbers to themselves. Maybe it makes them feel better to only focus on the good numbers. But look at the bad numbers. Where are you falling down? Because that's a problem you can solve. Every problem has a solution. So there's no point patting yourself on the back for the good stuff. I mean, we celebrate small wins, obviously. It's, it's important part of like the culture. But in terms of actually growing the business, where are the you know where can you um, improve? Our timeout rates, for instance, were too high, so we looked into reducing those. Our churn was starting to creep up. Look into those numbers. I think that that is a crucial element of yeah. um, 
surpassing that revenue. And also with our revenue, we did a financial forecast for the next year. And so we really looked at our customer acquisition cost, how much it cost us and how much money we needed to invest in which channels um, to achieve that sales growth. So I think by looking at your metrics and working out, you can actually see if you can track your ads right through to a booking, how much it costs you to acquire a company. And then you know how much you have to invest to make a certain amount of money. So we did really look at our numbers. We did some testing with um, advertising so we could see that our CAC was linear and then we kept investing on those routes that did perform for us. And we focused on the right things. Too many businesses are focusing on how many Instagram followers they're (laughs) getting or increasing and not focusing on how many repeat customers they're getting. So one of our key growth metrics is 98% plus customer satisfaction. So have five really good key growth metrics that you look at all the time, the important ones, and you'll get there with revenue and stop worrying about engage. I mean, social media is important, but it's not the be all and end all. It's not producing sales. Uh, so yeah, stop worrying about your following and what your, um, and your engagement and stuff like that. It's important, but maybe not top five numbers to focus on. Amazing. I think on that note, we can finish it up. Thank you for being so transparent and for the amazing advice that you've kind of, you know, given the listeners, Lauren and Lisa. Thank you for coming Thanks on board. So Thanks University. for having us. That's it for another episode of Founders University. This episode was brought to you by Squarespace. Hop on to squarespace.com now, buy a domain and set up a website with one of their beautifully designed templates. And don't forget to use the offer code PTV to get 10% off your first purchase. If you liked what you heard, subscribe, rate us five stars, and forward a link to a friend. Stay tuned for another episode of Founders University, coming to your headphones and speakers in a fortnight.